0: Hi, my name is Caitlin, and welcome to The Gospel House. Our mission here at The Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ.
1: So, today uh, we are actually going to uh, kick off the end. This is, we're going to tie up our Grateful Praise sermon series and we're going to do it in two parts. Um, But both of the sermons for both this week and next week are going to be connected. Um, And so, for both weeks, we're going to end Grateful Praise and and speaking on, you know, how can we be people who embody grateful praise? And we're going to do so by talking about contentment. That should be fun, right? So we're going to talk about this in two parts, tackle this in two parts. Um, But the the key to contentment, uh, probably one of the best scripture passages on contentment, actually comes from Paul in the book of Philippians. So we're going to be looking at Philippians. For those of you who recognize this passage, you'll know this is a pet peeve passage of mine. Because we take this passage and we put it on all sorts of things like athletic apparel and everything. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? You guys have heard that before, okay? But when we take that passage in context, Paul is not talking about that. Now look, there are passages of Scripture that very specifically say that with God, nothing is impossible, right? This is not one of those passages, because if we look at it in context, what Paul means when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is very different than I can shoot a basketball really well, I can score goals on the, in hockey and soccer, I can score touchdowns, like all the things, right? That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about contentment. So here's what Paul says, starting in verse 10. This is from Philippians 4. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked an opportunity to act. Not that I speak from need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with little, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my difficulty. You can clearly see in context, Paul is not talking about being able to do anything that he wants to do, right? He's talking about the joy that comes when we are content. And that with Christ, if our focus is on Christ, we can be content in any situation, in any circumstance. So the question is are you? Are you content in any and every circumstance? Huh? One of my favorite quotes comes from a woman named Sarah Edwards. She was the wife of the great revival preacher, Jonathan Edwards. And when Jonathan Edwards passed away around the age of 50, Sarah Edwards wrote to her daughter, and in that quote, this quote has been referenced by my wife and I many times, we have run to this quote because we found such comfort in it. But this is what she wrote to her daughter. She said, My dear child, What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we might kiss the rod. He lays on our back and not complain. The Lord has done it. God has helped me adore his goodness that we had your father for so long. My God lives and he has my heart. What an incredible thing to say. In the face of tragedy, in the face of loss and sorrow and suffering, oh, that we might kiss the rod he lays on our back and not complain. It is the common thread that runs within real Christianity. Somehow, Since the beginning, the real Christians, the real, even before Christianity, the real followers of God embody grateful praise in the midst of tragedies. Real disciples know how to kiss the rod. And so today, we will talk about contentment, In kissing the rod. Anybody want to throw up just by the mere mention of that? Right? That doesn't sound fun. Trust me, next week will be much more fun than this week. But contentment in suffering. Learning to be content no matter what. Now, we'll get to this double edge of the sword next week. It's easy to be content, so we say, when life is good. When we have plenty, right? We like to think that that's when it's easiest to be content, don't we? We'll talk about that next week. But when life gives us lemons, right? The world says we'll make lemonade. That's actually not what the Bible says, though. The Bible says to praise, to rejoice, to give thanks in the midst of your suffering. Not to pretend it's not there, not to pretend that bad is good, nothing like that but to give thanks in the midst of suffering. This can be very difficult for us, especially because today the church, specifically in the United States, has kind of flipped this, right? We've, we've let ourselves be changed by the culture that we're currently in, and we've adapted church to fit culture instead of the other way around. But the reality is, this, worshiping in the midst of horrible circumstances, praising, giving thanks in the midst of horrible circumstances, is where the church was born. So how do we show contentment in our suffering? How do we kiss the rod and not complain? The early church understood this. Do we? So today I want to look at these three things. First, I want to look at what it looks like to praise in the midst of pain. Why that's important for us. Then we'll look at the power that praise has in our life. And then finally we'll wrap up by looking at the secret to contentment. So first up, Why do we need to know how to praise in the midst of our suffering? And for this, I want to flip back to the book of Ephesians. We talked about this the past two weeks. We looked at Ephesians 1. Now, Ephesians, we talked about this the past two weeks, but but the book of Ephesians is really a how-to book. Paul gives us the church in Ephesus he writes to for the purpose to make them more mature in their walk with Jesus. So the book of Ephesians is really kind of a how-to book for churches that are looking to become more mature in their faith. And Paul starts with, you've got to learn how to praise. That's what Ephesians 1 is all about. You've got to learn how to praise God, how to worship, how to thank Him for who He has called you to be and for who He is. That's where it starts, taking that next step into maturity. But then, later on in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 5, Paul reminds us this. He says, So then, be careful how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine in which there is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to our God and Father, and subject yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. I really want to hone in on verse 20, Always giving thanks for all things. But do we do that? Do you do that? See, most of the lessons on this, and I am absolutely certain because lots of churches love to do topical sermons. Topical sermons are very powerful when you coincide them with the time of year that it is and being that Thanksgiving is coming up, I am certain that there are a billion sermons being preached on being thankful right now, right? That's kind of what I thought this sermon series was going to be. And then, like always, God kind of left-hooked me and was like, no, you don't, Jeremy. You're going to preach the hard line on all of this junk. Do we thank him? For all things. Because the majority of the time, the thankful sermon is, every night before you go to bed, count your blessings. Right? Tell Jesus all the things. If you only had the things that you thanked God for, how much would you actually have? Right? You guys have heard that before? And I'm not saying it's bad. It's true. We're going to talk about that next week. But that's next week's sermon. But according to Paul, we are to give thanks for all the good things? mm That's not what it says, is it? All things. Can I ask you a real honest question? And I'll be, I'll be honest with you all. My answer to this is vehemently no. <laughs> when is the last time that you have thanked God for your latest event or circumstance of suffering? God, thank you for allowing me to walk through this fire. God, thank you for allowing my father-in-law to suffer a stroke and for it flipping my family's life upside down. Thank you. Right? I might pray that, but when I pray it, it's facetious. Sarcastic. Right? Facetious is a big word. I apologize. Right? Do we thank him for our suffering? Because Paul says all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Do we kiss the rod that he lays on our back? Or do we complain? Because what we do in the midst of our suffering shows what we actually believe. Because the reality is, there is power in our praise. Now, here's where every worship leader in America gets up here and tells you that when you praise in the face of the enemy, that you take back ground that the enemy has stolen from you, that prison walls come tumbling down, that you receive your healing, I know, because I used to lead worship, and I said all those things. Guys, do you see what we do, though? We take worship. We take worship, the most sacred and holy thing that is supposed to be all about God, and we turn it into this perversion where it's all about us there's power in your praise to free you and you get, and you get, and you get. Come on. Now look, I'm not saying those things don't happen, right? But they happen according to God's plan and purpose. It's not for you to determine what your worship does and what it doesn't do. There is power in our praise that has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your circumstances. Guys, it's theological garbage is what all of that stuff is. Yes, there is an instance in the book of Acts where the disciples are praising God and the prison walls open up and they walk out, where there's an earthquake and they walk out of prison. Right? You know what the Bible doesn't say? it doesn't say that it was their praise that caused that earthquake. Right? We can't make that jump. Because we turn, again, we twist worship into this thing that it was never meant to be. Again, this is Christianity. This is the church transforming itself into culture. But is that what we're supposed to do? That's not what Romans 12 tells us, right? What's Romans 12 say? Do not be conformed to this world, right? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But yet we take these messages because we think it's going to make the church more popular. Because we think, oh, well, this will get people in the doors. This will get people to buy our worship albums. Right? And we twist it. The reality is, this praise in the presence of suffering, praise in the midst of our trials, the power in it, y'all, is that God has designed that praise specifically to grow His church. Look through the book of Acts. And over and over again, you'll see this thread. And it's not just the book of Acts, y'all, because it's happening today. If we'll pull ourselves out of our little American bubble and look at the church worldwide, we see it. The power of praise is not built to get you out of your suffering. God has designed it to draw attention to Him that we as Christians can worship in the midst of our suffering. And what a testimony that is to the world that's watching us. Look at the early church. We actually read this passage in our, uh, if you do our, our, the Bible in a Year plan with the Gospel House. This is the passage that we read this week. We got a big slew of it. But this is in Acts 5. And it tells us this. That first, the disciples, they're going all around Jerusalem. You know, they, they just got baptized in the Holy Spirit. They've got this Holy Spirit power. They're running all over Jerusalem. They're healing people. They're casting out demons. All of this stuff. All the Jewish leaders are seeing this, and they're saying amongst themselves, hold on a minute. Everybody's running after these Christians. Everybody's running after this, this guy that we just crucified and now they say is raised. If we let these guys keep going, we're not going to have a church left. They're going to take all our people we got to stop them. And so they bring the disciples in. they, They throw them in prison. They lock them up. And this is what happens. It says, They, being the Jewish leaders, followed His advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they, being the disciples, went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now, I've taught on this one before. I find this passage remarkable. If you don't find this passage remarkable, I would say you have a poor finger on the pulse of your reality. Because human beings don't do this. Ladies and gentlemen, we can talk about all the miracles in the world that we want. The power of the Holy Spirit, raising the dead, healing the blind, causing the lame to walk, casting out demons. This is the biggest miracle I've ever seen in my life. This is the power of the Holy Spirit at work. You want to talk about being a Spirit-filled believer. We've talked about this, right? human beings are built to stub their toe and think that no one has suffered worse than you in the history of mankind. Right? We do it all the time. And so for these men to be pulled into prison, told, do not preach this name of Jesus anymore, and then beaten for that proclamation of Jesus for them to walk out of those doors praising God I mean y'all come on put this put this praise in your lips right anybody can sing the song about God taking down mountains and God right where's the worship song today that says God thanks that we got beat today God thanks that these guys flogged us with a rod 30 times where are those worship songs Because this is worship, y'all. This is praise. These men get beat down. And they leave rejoicing that they were worthy to get a beat down. I've watched a lot of Cleveland Browns football, y'all. There's not a single time that I have finished watching a game that they lose 50 to nothing. Thank you, Jesus. I enjoyed watching that. And that's a football game. Right? Do we realize how incredible this is? But, ladies and gentlemen, the church, or not the church, I'm sorry, the world saw this. The world saw these disciples walk out of these doors and praise God for this. Just like the world sees us today. When we cry persecution because they canceled our favorite flavor of ice cream at the ice cream shop. When we cry spiritual warfare because we got stopped by the traffic light on the way to church and now we're five minutes late. It's funny, but it's only funny because it's true, right? We all know those people. The world notices, y'all. And the world noticed when the disciples praised in the middle of their persecution. Because look at what happens after. It says, Now Saul approved of putting Stephen to death. This is fast forwarding a couple chapters. And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and mourned loudly for him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he would drag away men and women and put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went through places preaching the word. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the power of praise in the midst of our suffering. I am not going to sit here and argue with you that when we praise, it turns our suffering into a grand time. Jesus isn't going to argue that with you. I think Jesus was sitting up on the cross like, (laughs) guys, this is super. Having a fabulous time up here. If I could get some of that sour wine down there. That's not what he was doing, right? Praising in the midst of your persecution doesn't make it fun. It's not comfortable. But that's the power of it. If you can praise God in the midst of the worst of circumstances, that's a God I want to believe in. Right? If your faith folds when you start going through hard stuff, I don't want that faith. The world doesn't want that faith. But when in the midst of the worst of the worst, you can praise God. You can thank him. Guys, anybody. How are you? How are you doing today? Oh, I'm blessed beyond measure. Just got that loan from the bank and we're adding on a new addition to our house and things are grand. Anybody can do it, right? But for us to be real, I'm going through it. Life is hard. I feel like there are some mornings I don't even want to wake up. But I know that God is good. And I know that he has a plan and a purpose for my life. And so I'm choosing to believe. Y'all, which faith do you want? Right? Which faith is worth offering to the world? Because I'll take the latter any day over the one that can only praise God when things are good. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. I can't remember exactly when it was, but the the fastest growing church in the world right now is the church in Iran. You guys remember that when we talked about that? In the middle of incredible persecution, the underground church is growing like wildfire. And no matter what the Iranian government does, no matter what the Muslims do, no matter what the opponents of the church do to persecute these Christians, they cannot stop it from growing. Before that, it was actually the the underground church in China was growing faster than anything else. That was the fastest growing church. And the Chinese, you know what they did? You know what the government did, the Chinese government? They went through the Bible and they censored, they cut out any parts of the Bible that, that disagreed with them that they didn't like, and they gave it back to the people. And they said, here, this is a Christianity that you are allowed to believe in, and we will not persecute you for it. Guess what happened to the growth of the church? They offered a comfortable Christianity, and the church stopped growing. They took persecution off of the table, and offered a way to follow Jesus that wouldn't get them in trouble. And the church stopped growing. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to open our eyes here in America. We call ourselves Christians. We call ourselves the church. But look, is the church in America growing? It's been in decline for a while now, y'all. Why is that? And I believe with all of my heart, it is this. Y'all, I'm starting to very, very slowly open up those little packets that y'all, slowly, slowly, don't get on me yet about your grades. I'm not there yet. Right? But guys, this is where God's leading us. The church, the comfortable church, sits in their seats, and stays comfortable. And that's it. And we're content to call that church. But the church that praises God, no matter what our circumstances, the church that allows God to push us out of our comfort zone, that church Proclaims the gospel. That church goes. That church is sent. Look, the church in Acts didn't have a choice, right? They had to run, they had to get out there. But what that persecution did is it forced them out of their comfort zone and it forced them to preach the gospel to people who maybe didn't want to hear it, right? Are we letting God do the same with us? Or are we comfortable sitting in our chairs? You know, there's this really scary statistic out there. It's been a while since I've revisited it, but I would assume it's still true. But the older a church gets, right? That's the, as, as you get older, you're supposed to be becoming more mature, right? That's the goal. You want to become more mature. But for the church in the United States, they've done studies on these. As the church gets older, I think it's at at like the maybe 7-year mark, 10-year mark, when a church gets that old, the percentage flips. Church plants, which is what we are, we're a church plant, get 80% of their growth from people who were not attending church previously, who either didn't have a church, are new to the faith, you know, whatever it is, 80%. And then the other 20% are people who come from other churches. When that church hits like 7 to 10 years old, that number flips. As the church in America becomes more mature, 80% of their growth comes from borrowing Christians from other churches. Should that be the case, Gospel House? There's no kingdom growth in that. I've vehemently said this to you all here. I do not want to grow this church that way. I don't want you to go to all your Christian friends and tell them why the gospel house is better than the church they're going to. That does not grow the kingdom of God. But are we letting God send us to anyone? Or have we gotten comfortable and stagnant? Gospel House? Huh? I'm not the pastor of any other church. Are we bringing people with us? Who are you discipling? Who is God pushing you to? And can I challenge a bold prayer? God, make me uncomfortable. If it takes a wave of persecution... If it takes a wave of suffering, whatever it takes, God, push me out of my comfort zone so that I can start going to people who don't know You. This is what Jackie prayed this morning, right? We as the church and y'all, it doesn't. I've only had to look through a couple packets. God is speaking the same thing to a lot of us here, Gospel House. It's time to start turning our attention. the lost, to show the lost how we praise in the middle of our suffering. That does not mean we pretend that we have it all together. That does not mean that we tell people who are far away from the church, hey, look, when you start following Jesus, everything gets better and life becomes easy. But we're real with people. There's this faulty idea out there that if we show weakness, people are going to be turned off by that. But y'all, we show our weakness to others so that we can show them the strength of our God. That God can deliver me, not from my trials, but that God can walk with me and, and deliver me in my trials. Right? But we've got to be willing to go. We've got to be willing to let God make us uncomfortable so that we can go into the world and tell people about our God. Look at what happens in the midst of all of this persecution, in the midst of everything that's going on in the book of Acts. This persecution breaks out. People watch the disciples get beaten. They watch Stephen get killed. They watch this wave of Christians being arrested and thrown in jail and murdered and beaten and all the things. And look at what the church does. The word of God kept spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Y'all, the very people who were persecuting Christians were becoming Christians. Why? Because the Christians were yelling about how they were being persecuted? That's not why. Is it? Because the Christians suffered well. Because the Christians praised in the middle of their horrible circumstances when everything was being taken from them. I Meet mean, guys to become a Christian at this point when you're being turned out of the synagogues, when the Jews are kicking you out, that was a death sentence. Right? A lot a lot of people don't know this. I think I've talked about this before, but but back in ancient Rome, the the Romans had a deal with the Jews. Right? The Jews were allowed to worship at their, at their temples. They were allowed to, to obey all of the religious laws, but they had to pay a temple tax. So if you didn't worship at the temple to pay your tax, you weren't allowed to simply not worship. You had to go to some temple and you had to pay a tax. Do you know what that means to go to a different temple of a Roman god and pay the tax if you're a Christian? It's called idolatry. So you can't do that. Christians were literally, and if, if you if you said, eh, that's okay, Caesar, I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> you know how many people in history said that to Caesar? Nobody, nobody who's living anyway, right? You got killed. This is literally a death sentence. This is, this, and it's not just on you, it's on your entire family. So it's your entire family either disowns you, Or they go with you. But this isn't some like, oh yeah, they just weren't allowed to go to church anymore. That's not what it was. Literally, everything is being taken from you. You are being asked to give up everything. You go to the market as a Christian. Nobody's going to trade with you anymore. You've got a black mark on you for the rest of your life. Everything is gone. And yet... When they look, these Christians are still worshiping. Nothing changed, y'all. When they would drag the Christians into the Roman Colosseums and let wild dogs and lions go, just tear these people limb from limb. The Christians worshipped God in the middle of it. And the soldiers who were in charge of killing the Christians gave their hearts to Jesus because they saw that these Christians have something that I don't have. Guys, we are not going to win the world with the smoothest and slickest marketing techniques. That's not God's way. God's way is to show the world what we have. And that's that even though I am flawed and broken, I serve a God who makes up for everything that I could ever lose. It's not to show the world that I can be a Christian and have all the worldly blessings. It's to show the world that I don't need the worldly blessings because I already have the greatest blessing in my Lord and Savior. It is showing contentment regardless of of our circumstances. This is all really wonderful. But how? Right? How do we do any of this? How do we possibly, and and any of you who have walked through suffering, you know how hard this is. Guys, can we take our Christianity hats off and start just being real? The world does not want to see that Christianity is easy. Sat in so many planning meetings where, how do we make it easy for people to become disciples of Jesus? Jesus didn't make it easy for people to become disciples of Jesus, y'all. It is hard to be a disciple of Jesus. Right? You all agree with me? (laughs) Right? Stop pretending it's easy. I think if the church stopped pretending so much in front of the world, we'd have way more successful results. Let's show the world what it takes. Let's show the world. It's not about all these Christian niceties and, you know, all the big Christian words. Let's be real. Life sucks. But God is good. And that is the secret to contentment. The secret to contentment in any situation, but very specifically the secret to contentment in the midst of suffering. And it is all anchored in the sovereignty of God. Plain and simple. Y'all, theologically speaking, Christians... We know this, but we are absolutely horrible at living out the implications of this. God is sovereign. Do you all agree? God knows everything. He's omnipotent. Do you all agree? There is nothing that happens in this life, in the next life, in the past, that has happened outside of God's control. Do we all agree? So everything that happens, happens according to God's plan. Do we all agree? God's plan is perfect. Do we all agree? We're good on that theologically, right? Yet, as soon as trials hit, theology goes out the window doesn't it? But guys, that's our anchor. How can we stand in the middle of a Roman Colosseum ready to be sacrificed in the worst sort of way and say, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. How can we let go of a loved one? How can we bury a child? How can we, I mean, we can go through all the atrocities, all of the heartbreak, everything that life throws at us, and say in the middle of it, God is good all the time. And it's with this as our anchor We get a sneak peek of this in Ephesians 5. You read the secret, but it went right over your head. Isn't it funny how the Bible does that sometimes? But in Ephesians 5, before we get to the part where Paul tells us to give thanks in all things, Paul tells us this little sneaky thing. Verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is is the will of the lord is perfect y'all i have this conversation with people a lot as a pastor people always you know want to come for spiritual advice when they're up against like a really hard decision and i've used this analogy before so forgive me if you're ready to throw up every time you hear it but we look at the will of god as if it's if as if there's a right and a wrong answer right Following God is walking down a road, and eventually we get to a point where the road forks this way and this way. And if we go this way, we're wrong. That's not God's will. You're dead. But if we go this way, it's the right way, and there's blessing and abundance, and that's where God is. That's not the will of God, y'all. That's not the will of God. I hate to break it to you. Pastor Tim Keller gives the best analogy on this. But he said, the will of God is much more like a river than it is a road. And if you will just let God carry you down the river, right? All rivers have currents, right? If you just float, the river takes you where you need to go, right? Then you'll go where you need to go. We get in trouble sometimes because we swim against the current, right? And we say, "Ah, oh, God, you're leading me this way, but I really want to swim this way. But guys, here's the great thing about being a Christian. The great thing about being a follower of Christ, even the mistakes... Even the moments when Jeremy Allen Metzger, and guys, there have been a lot of them, there still are times when I think I know better than God, right? If you say there aren't any for you, you are a liar, and I'm going to find you and get you, right? We all have those moments where I think, okay, God, the river's taking me this way, but that looks really nice over there. I'm just going to, if the river happens to take me over there, right? Right? We all do it. But even in those moments, you're not strong enough to break the will of God. Right? Theologically, we know this. I'm not big enough to break God's will. I'm not that strong, right? God's not sitting up in heaven and I decide like, eh, I'm going to go do this instead. And God's like, oh, fooey, Going to have to change my plan now. Jeremy goofed it all up. I'm not that strong. God can redeem even my mistakes. This is why we get the promise in Scripture from Romans eight twenty eight. We know that God causes all things. Ladies and gentlemen, that God causes good things? No, all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, listen, if you're outside of Jesus Christ, you don't get to claim this promise. Do you? You've lost that safety net. Who is this promise for? Those who love God. How do you prove you love God? You do what he says. Jesus' words, y'all, not mine. Check out John 14 if you're curious right jesus says those who love me obey my commands so for those of us who love god who obey his commands everything is part of his plan which means personalize this y'all bring it home Whatever you're walking through right now, no matter how badly it hurts, no matter how much pain you are in, that pain has a purpose. It's God's will for you. It is not a mistake. Here's Guys, and and maybe somebody needs to hear this. Pain is not punishment for those who are in Jesus Christ. You hear that? Pain is not punishment for those who are in Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus Christ bore the entirety of God's wrath for you. All of it. So if you are going through something, it is not because God is punishing you. Because that's what Jesus is for. Now look, God could be course correcting you. God could be, you know, when you reach into the cookie jar and your mom slaps your hand, ah, don't do that anymore, right? He could be doing that, but he is not punishing you. Because to say, Jesus is punishing me, God's punishing me because I did this, God's punishing me because of this past mistake, God's punishing me, to say that would be to say that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross didn't get rid of all of God's wrath. And again, theologically, we know that's not the case. But no matter what you are going through, your suffering is never for nothing. God has a purpose for it. We talked about this last week when we talked about the whole issue one and issue two thing here in Ohio, right? A lot of people are really bummed that those things passed. But guys, God has a purpose. Issue one and issue two, those weren't the two things in the history of the world that happened and God was like, ah, no, right? Biden didn't get into office and God was like, oh, no, Ah, the election was rigged. What are we going to do? It's not what happened. God knows what he's doing. And no matter what you're walking through, God has a purpose for it. When I lose my job, when I lose a loved one, when absolutely horrific things happen. And guys, make no mistake, this is nowhere is is God saying, yeah, just just get over it. It's just a job. It's just a loved one. There's people in Africa who have it way worse than you. That's not what God ever says. But what God does say is, I have a plan and a purpose. And you can be mad about it, (laughs) y'all. That's that's one of my favorite things about God. I love the book of Job for that reason. Job is suffering, and he's not just like, oh, well, I guess I'm suffering, right? He's mad about it. He's praying to God and saying, God, why is this happening? You can go to God and you can ask him. You can tell him. God is a loving father who loves nothing more than to hear your voice. You can bend his ear all day and all night long if it makes you feel better, and he will listen to it. But when the dust settles, do you trust that God loves you and that he has a plan and a purpose for you and your suffering? Jana shared this quote with me this week. She sent me a text message and she said, is this really a C.S. Lewis quote? And I said, well, it sounds like something C.S. Lewis would say. I was unfamiliar with it. But I did a little research, and it is indeed a C.S. Lewis quote. It's a quote that he sent to one of his friends. But his quote says this, We're not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. That's a cheery one. Have a great Sunday, y'all. But we know that this is the case. Don't we? Y'all, I would love to sit here and tell you that I have learned to follow God through all of my successes in life. Right? That, that everything, the deepest lessons that I've learned in life have been when I've been super successful and, and never made a mistake. We know that's not true though, right? But it was, I think it was Bill Gates. I think I was at a leadership summit once and they were talking about Bill Gates. And he said he won't hire anybody if they haven't failed at at least a million-dollar project. Because even Bill Gates knows that we learn the most from our failures. Right? I would love to pretend, y'all, that the deepest lessons I've learned from God have come from these mountaintop experiences where everything is grand and the glory of the Lord gently comes down and caresses my cheek. That's never the case. Come on, y'all, right? That's never the case. The deepest and richest lessons that I have ever learned from the Lord have come from gut-wrenching tragedy. When I am just ugly crying on the floor, and yet his presence comes down and doesn't relieve everything. It doesn't just all of a sudden, oh, hey, guess what? Jeremy, you didn't lose that baby. The miscarriage was for pretend. It's it's still alive. Miracle of miracles. See, you praised your way out of it, and I saved you. No. He comes down in the midst and says, Jeremy, this is awful. And I never wanted it to be like this. But I will make all things new. Christian, that's the hope the world needs now. We are so busy pretending that we have it all together. We won't let people see us cry. But guys, the early church, the first Christians, let their enemies see them broke. To to, to watch them break. And that was what caused their enemies to come to faith, right? I love, we read it in our Bible in year plan, but that story of Stephen, unbelievable. Stephen argues with these Jews and says, you know, they, they throw him out of the synagogue because he tells them, you know, you crucified Jesus, you crucified the chosen one, they throw him out of the synagogue. And Stephen looks up to heaven and he sees Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And he tells the people what he sees. So the Jews pick up stones and they start to stone him. And in the midst of it, Stephen says, Father, forgive them. Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. Church, we spend so much time looking at the world as our enemy. That's who God sent you to. So can I ask, we're going to sing a song here, and can I ask you, spend a little time to ask the Holy Spirit, who is your enemy? Who is that enemy that you need to go talk to about Jesus? That person that you have spent all of your time and effort fighting against that God says, ah, That's who you need to be fighting for. That's who you need to be praying for. That's who you need to be blessing and being open and honest with. Because, y'all, the church is a great thing. I love our church, I love our body. We can be open and we can be vulnerable with one another, and it's a fantastic, safe place to come. But, y'all, if we get so comfortable here in our safe space, We will not do the will of God. We cannot be comfortable and Christians. That's the death of the church. We've got to be willing to become uncomfortable. Are we willing to let God teach us these hard truths? Are we so busy trying to pray our way out of our suffering that we miss it entirely? God used the cross of Jesus Christ, the most horrific event in in human history, y'all, the most blatant account of injustice the world has ever seen, and he used that event to bring salvation to all of mankind. If God can use the cross to do that, then I can trust that through the worst of my suffering, he can bring good about. Amen? Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you are pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like Him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you. And remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.